Well, for today, I want to turn back to Galatians chapter 6, where we've been seeing some things. A couple weeks ago, I mentioned that there were four things, at least that I noticed in Galatians chapter 6, in the couple of verses there that begin the chapter, that spoke of what the church is supposed to be like. Definitions, if you will, of the church and Christianity. I'm sure there's more than four, but these are the four that I thought of. Talked about two already. Talked about the fact that the church consists of individuals in whom Christ dwells personally. And because each individual has Christ in them, we have a body of Christ. And Christ is our having in common. That's communion and fellowship because of Christ in each individual. And then last week I talked about the fact that the Bible calls the church the body of Christ, talked a little bit how about how that functions. Today I want to cover the other two, the last two. They're closely related. I want to talk about the fact that Jesus Christ calls His church His witness. His witness. And then closely related to that, and we're going to just lump these two together, I want to talk about the fact that the church is supposed to be, and this is out of Timothy, a scripture that I'll read later, the church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth. The pillar and ground of the truth. And if you put those two points together, witness and pillar and ground of the truth, you see really that what the church is supposed to be is a true witness to Jesus, a true expression of him, a true testimony to him. Now, out of Galatians 6, we've been reading about Paul's instructions as to how we're supposed to help one another. He says that if somebody is overtaken in a fault, they which are spiritual or more mature, in other words, ought to restore such a one. In other words, back to what? Back to truth. Back to a relationship with God that is in the truth. Because presumably this person has strayed out of that. And so this is the restoration. Back to the truth. And that we're to restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering ourselves. In other words, making sure our vertical relationship is first right with God. Elsewise, how could we be equipped to help another? And he says, look to yourself, lest you be tempted. And then, as we saw last week, bear one another's burdens. And we shared how we can help each other bear the burden, whether it be the one that God has put on us, or we can help each other uh, not bear burdens we shouldn't be bearing. In other words, keeping the will of God. And I mentioned a few ways to do that. We encourage each other. Essentially, we point each other to Jesus, don't we? That he may be the one that carries each along. And we do that in a number of ways, teaching and so forth. We certainly do it by prayer, which is such a big subject in itself. But in other words, we're all supposed to be fellow helpers of each other in building each other up in Christ. That each person, each person might be presented mature in Christ. Because the body of Christ is only going to be as strong and mature as the individuals who are in it. And that's a principle all through Scripture. Well, 
If you read this passage in Galatians, and here is how it relates to today's subject. When you talk about helping each other, restoring each other into the truth, certainly it is impossible to do that unless we each are a true witness or testimony to Christ unto each other. Isn't that true? If I'm supposed to help somebody in their walk in the Lord, my life needs to be a witness to Jesus, and in this case a witness to them of Jesus. Now the witness uh, uh, point of truth that I'm talking about certainly applies to everything about a Christian walk. You and I individually are supposed to be a witness to everybody that's around us. We're going to talk about what that means today a little bit more. But in a very real sense, ministry comes from that. Ministry in the church, if it is of God, must be in the truth and it must be a witness of Jesus to each other. What else would it be a witness of? It certainly shouldn't be a witness of me. If I'm a minister, or if you are a minister, our ministry should not consist of us going around sharing our opinions about things. If we do that, we're in the flesh, and it's going to be biased, uh, and we're going to have a personal agenda. No, this is about God having put something inside of us, a work being done in us, and the result being a witness unto Christ. Now, how many see that, yes, that is of tremendous benefit to the individual. It's of tremendous benefit spiritually to the people who are benefiting from that witness. But how many see that when we begin to talk about being a witness unto God, that we're really getting at the core of something, which is God's glory. Which is God's glory. How many recognize that God, if I can put it this way without being misunderstood, that God has rights? He's God. God is sovereign. God is Lord. He's running the universe. And everything that he does ultimately is unto his glory, not because he has a big ego that needs to be fed. When we think about the glory of God, what is that? Is it some display that people can get excited about? No. God's glory, in essence, is God's showing of himself, manifesting himself so that everybody can be edified and helped by it. When we begin to see and know and walk in the greatness of God and the glory of God, guess who benefits? We do. And so anytime God is made known, anytime there is a true witness unto him by people, God is glorified. And of course the people are benefited. The Bible says that in the final analysis, the whole world, God intends, is going to be filled with the glory of God. Now that speaks of a world populated by people that are fully in harmony with his will and his purpose. And so all of this is unto God's glory, but it does involve ministry unto God's glory and our benefit. So when we talk about restoring such a one in the spirit of meekness, we're really talking about being a true witness to them. Now, before I get into this witness... I want to talk a little bit more about this fact that we need to be true, tell the truth, be a true witness to each other. 
Today in the church, you have a lot of people preaching about love. Love, love, love. All we need to do is love each other, they say. And actually that, as a statement in and of itself, is true, but you have to define what love means, don't you? For instance, I love my children, but would it be love for me to neglect to tell them that they shouldn't walk across the street unless they walked, looked both ways? Well, I could say, I love you, I love you, I love you, but if I don't what? If I don't instruct them and tell them the truth about life, both dangers and blessings, well then that love really isn't love, is it? Is it love if my little boy or girl is walking over toward a stove with a hot pan of water and ready to reach up to it? Is it love if I say, well, I'm not going to warn them about that. It's best they find out for themselves. That's not love, is it? So in other words, when the Bible talks about love, there are some definitions that are built into that. And of course, that's part of what's built into Galatians 6 when it talks about restoring one another. As I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, if I am a Jehovah Witness, I'm going to take Galatians 6 and I'm going to try to restore people back to being a Jehovah Witness. And I'm going to say that's love. But what's the missing element there? The missing element in all those foolish kind of loves is truth. You can't love somebody. Brethren cannot love each other unless it is in truth. I can be nice to you. Maybe if I had a temperament that was completely unoffensive, maybe if I took classes on how to win friends and influence people, I could make you feel good about yourself. I could offer you nothing maybe to stumble over in the context of whatever religious agenda we're walking in. I could edify you on how to be the best Jehovah Witness that you could possibly be. And everybody in the room might think that I am loving you. And maybe I am as far as I know. But again, all that love can operate in deception, can it? I've known people who have taught abominable things and have done so in what they would say is love. Now this is cleared up if we look at one verse in the Bible. I'm just going to mention it rather than turn there. The Bible says in Ephesians 4.15, and this is the passage on how to build up in Christ. In fact, I think I will turn there because that's an important point. Ephesians 4.15, Paul talks about the edifying of the body. Going back to verse 12, he gives all these ministry gifts. And he says, these are all for the maturing of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying or the building up of the body of Christ. And I've mentioned that to edify somebody in Christ means that you get them into business with Christ for themselves. You can't be edified in Christ any other way. There is no way to be edified in Christ by proxy. You have to personally come to know him. And if you are coming to know him, you're being built up in him. That's what ministry is supposed to be doing. Until we all come in the unity of the faith and into the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, right there you have truth. Paul certainly is not 
suggesting that the ministry gifts ought to build up the body of Christ until we come into a false knowledge of the Son of God. He's talking about knowing the truth about Jesus. It's all part of what it means to build up the body in Christ. And he says, unto a mature man, under the measure and stature of the fullness of Christ. Now why? Here's one of the protections, in other words, of being mature in Christ and built up in Christ. That we henceforth no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. There are a lot of reasons why people are deceived and most of them are our own fault in the end. At least it's there in the sense of potentiality. There's something the enemy has to appeal to in us if we're going to be deceived. It may not be deliberate on our part. It may not be some heinous sin. But there's something there that we need to deal with before the Lord. And some of it, most of it, is our blame. But the solution and the protection against being deceived is to know Jesus. It says it right here. Built up in the knowledge of God. Built up in the knowledge of Jesus. If you know Jesus, you're going to recognize and discern what is not of Him. And you're going to discern what is of Him. If you don't know Jesus, you're going to throw a dart at a dartboard and hope you hit the right space. And then you will be open to what appeals to you. And the enemy has a list and knows what those things are in each one of us. So now we're beginning to see why we need to be a true witness to each other and why the church itself needs to be centered in the truth about Jesus Christ. Verse 15, here in Ephesians 4, to gather all this together, Paul says, but speaking the truth in love, we may grow up into him in all things, which is the head even Christ. In other words, back to the examples I gave of how to instruct children. We're to love children. We're to love each other. But is it really love if you don't speak the truth in that love? Are we loving each other if we speak error and do it, quote, in love? No, it's not the love of God at all because error ultimately will lead us away from God and out of His will rather than in it. And so there really is no such thing as true agape Christian love unless it's based in truth. Now, speak the truth in love. There's another side to that too that is often missed today. It doesn't simply say speak the truth. You're supposed to speak it in love. In other words, this gets back to Galatians 1. The intention of telling each other the truth is to restore back to the truth. Anybody can get up and use the Bible. Bible, The Bible calls itself like a sword. The Word of God is like a sword. It's easy to get up and use the Bible like a sword, chopping people's heads off. And your words can be right. But if the intention there is not redemptive and restorative, then... It's not really speaking the truth in love, is it? It's speaking it in another spirit, and it might still be the truth. So God wants us to do both. He wants us to speak the truth. He wants us to do it in love. 
but never say you can bypass the truth and love people. You can't. Ultimately, you will destroy them. Now, I know that not only because the Bible says it directly, but anybody that would doubt that, and I'm not suggesting anybody in here would, but anybody listening to that, this that would doubt that you must speak the truth, all we need to do is ask ourselves the question, how does God, who is love, deal with us? Does God ever water down the truth? Does God ever play games with the truth? Does God ever sit on the fence? Does God ever tell us a half-truth? No, the Bible says God is love. The Bible says Jesus is the truth. And Jesus called the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. The fact of the matter is, everything about God speaks of truth, as well as love. You know, God is love. Jesus said, I am the truth. Jesus is God. You do the math, you figure it out. All of the works of God are in truth and in love. So the bottom line is, truth is not optional. And it's not optional because God's sitting in heaven pounding his fist on the podium saying, you better believe or else. Truth is not optional if we want to be free. Truth is not optional if we want to know God. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Well, what do we think will happen if we don't know the truth? We're not going to be free. So that's how important it is. So truth is central. Now, 1 Timothy, along this line, 4.15, is one of these points that I mentioned of the last two that all this leads to. 1 Timothy 3.15, actually. Paul is writing to Timothy and the church that he pastors, and he says, I'm going to come to you shortly, but if I tarry long, you need to know how you ought to behave yourself in the house of God, another name for the church, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. So now we see that the very terminology that God uses to describe the church is that the church, each congregation, if you will, or if you want to personalize it even further, each person, we all need to be a pillar and ground of the church. Now think about that picture. Pillar and ground. What is that? Well, a pillar is that which upholds a structure, isn't it? It supports weight. And so in that sense, we see that the church or an individual is supposed to hold up and support truth. In other words, stand for truth. But also, the church is to be the ground of the truth. In other words, we are to be anchored in the truth. And if you think about it, if you're not anchored in the truth, you can't hold up truth. Again, as I've been saying the last couple of weeks, we have to get a vertical relationship personally right with God. Or to use this language, we have to be anchored in the truth for ourselves. And then if we are, we can be a pillar in the church that holds up the whole building, that helps hold up the whole building even for other people. 
And so if you have a vertical relationship with God and you are anchored in truth and I am and third person is and the fourth person is, what we end up with, if everything is like that, is a house of God that is anchored in the truth and that is holding up the truth. Now again, can we see the truth is not optional? It's the very definition of what the body is all about. In fact, have we ever really defined things down to the bare bones and actually realized that Christianity itself is the truth? That's such a simple statement, isn't it? But have we ever thought of it like that? Christianity is the truth. So if we say we don't care about the truth, look where it leads us. I think in a very real sense of the word, Jesus Christ came to this earth, God become man, to restore the truth about God. Now, he came to die and be raised, but that was the means by which he restored the truth. It certainly was the means by which we can come to know the truth through the fact that he has done something to change us from darkness to light through his redemption. So the church is supposed to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is supposed to be, if you will, defined by truth. Now, one of the things that we often forget is that truth is really a whole. You touch one part of truth, you're really overlapping another. And the reason that is, is because truth is not just a body of teaching. Truth is a person. And what I'm getting at is this. When God says that the body of Christ or the church is supposed to be the pillar or ground of the truth, he's getting back to the fact that the church is supposed to be one with Jesus Christ, who is the truth. Or to turn it around and say it another way, if the church is right with God, or if an individual is right with God, can we see that we're going to know truth and we're going to stand for truth and we're going to seek and desire and hunger for truth? You will! Because Jesus is the truth. You can't get into fellowship with God and seek Jesus unless you are, in fact, seeking the truth. It just comes with the package. You don't even need to put those names on it. And that's what you're doing. Because the more and more and more we come to know Jesus, the more and more and more we're going to know the truth. And the more and more, as I mentioned before, we're going to be able to tell what is of Jesus and what is not. And herein, we are able to step aside just here for a second and give a definition. What is the definition of discernment? Now today, with all this false love stuff that you hear preached, if you start preaching truth and you start telling things as it is, isn't it a fact that people will accuse you of judging? And they'll say, you're dividing the body of Christ. Because you dare, up and, you dare get up and say, this is how it is. I would suggest some of those people read the Bible and ask themselves as to whether the Bible tells it how it is. 
all the apostles and Jesus lost their lives because they told it how it was. So there is going to be people that are offended. But we need to understand the difference between discernment and judging. And I'll just mention this briefly because we know that God wants us to discern. In fact, if you get into business with Christ, you're going to discern whether you like it or not. You just will. But we are told never to judge. Now there is some help here if we would look into the New Testament Greek. The word that's translated discernment and the word that is translated judgment does come from the same Greek word. But there is a different take on each of them. To discern means to see things the way God sees them. And that would include seeing what truth is, where truth is, where God is working, and all those kind of things. But discernment would also include seeing things that are not of God. Now, people that say you should never judge, and I'm going to get to judgment in a minute, really contradict themselves. The moment the words are out of their mouth, here's what I'm getting at. If I say to you, it is wrong for you to judge, how many see that I've just judged? If it is wrong for a Christian to define right and wrong, then you can't even say it's wrong to judge because you're defining right and wrong. In other words, if we weren't ever to know the difference between right and wrong, can we see how we would be a mindless entity just walking around? Everything we do during the day, ultimately, we're making value judgments, even if all that it is is today's a nice day. I mean, that's a judgment. Who says it's a nice day? You? Maybe I like rain. I mean, it can get that silly, can it? If we weren't supposed to know the difference between right and wrong, why did God bother giving us a conscience? In fact, if we weren't supposed to know the difference between right and wrong, why did God bother giving us His law that absolutely buries us as sinners? If we weren't supposed to know the difference between right and wrong, then can we see that the conviction of the Holy Spirit would be a violation of God's will? If we're not supposed to know the difference between right and wrong, God certainly isn't going to convict us of our right or of our wrong. I could pull out a whole bunch of scriptures, but the bottom line is that if there is one thing that God wants for Christians, it is that we would know the difference between right and wrong, and we do know it if we know Him. In fact, think about God for a second as a light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. What happens the closer you get to a light? The closer you get to light, the more clear things become. So the closer you get to Jesus, the more you know Him, the more you're going to know what right is and what wrong is. You won't even have to make the effort. Just know Jesus, that discernment will be there. And you can grab Bible verses to bring definition to it and so forth, and ought to. But the point is, you know God, you know light. 
you know God, you know truth, and therefore you know what is of light and truth and what isn't. Now, all of that is discernment. The closer that I get to God, the more I ought to discern. And the more the Bible says I will and ought to. Now, what's judgment? Well, while discernment certainly includes seeing wrong that other people do, judgment means I condemn them for it. In other words, if I'm judging in the way that Jesus prohibits, I, in essence, put myself in the place of God, and I begin to decide what somebody deserves because of the wrong they've done. How many know that if I'm driving my car down the street and I look over and I see somebody hitting somebody else over the head with a two-by-four, that it is right and proper for me to say, that is wrong. That guy shouldn't be doing that. Doesn't take much to figure that out. I, you know, I, I stayed up all night last night for thinking of this example. <laughs> there are wrong things that people do to each other, and we are right to call those things wrong. But if I take the next step and I say that the person that hit the other guy with the two-by-four deserves to go to hell because of that, then I have judged and we know that it isn't simply the words. There is a way to have a condemning attitude toward people. And you may stop short of saying they deserve to go to hell, but you know this spirit or attitude we can get toward people really puts them there and condemns them to hell anyway, doesn't it? And that too is judging. Now, when you understand the difference between discernment and judging, you can see why Paul, Jesus, and even they command us in the Bible. They say, speak the truth in love. They say, you tell it how it is. He says in this word, he says, not only do I want you to preach the truth, but I want you to preach against heresy when the situation calls for it. It is not a matter of judging. I can get up here and I can say absolutely that Benny Hinn is a false prophet. I can get up here and I can say that the revival down in Lakeland, Florida is not of God and there are many evil things going on down in that revival. And I am absolutely certain that I am right about those statements. Those are matters of discernment and we ought to say those things. But I would be wrong to say Benny Hinn deserves to go to hell and I demand he end up there. Now, he may... But I don't know. I have to leave that to God. I heard uh, one person one time say, well, Adolf Hitler better be in hell. Well, I believe he probably will be. And what we know about him, he probably deserves to go there. But I can't decide that, can I? Now, can we see that if I begin deciding that about other people, forget about Hitler for a while. We have enough trouble with this just with people we run into every day. Can we see that if I go around every day condemning people to hell, that probably it's because they're doing something that offends me? I'm not likely to condemn somebody to hell unless I have a personal stake in the matter, emotionally or otherwise. Maybe they've hurt me, violated me, maybe somebody I love. There's a hook there somewhere. And this is the motivation, you see, that 
gets us to the place where we take that place of God and condemn people to hell because there's something about us that they violated. So again, that's playing God. Now there are other aspects of judgment, such as imputing motives to people and the like. But generally speaking, those, that is the difference between discernment and judgment. Discernment is to see the truth about something. Judgment is to make a decision or a judgment against. And actually that word in the Greek that's always translated judgment means to judge against. That's different than simply seeing things as they are. God is the only judge. Now, there are times when God hands authority to people in the body of Christ and action has to be taken. We're not to ignore wrong because we're not to judge people. But the judgment that God prohibits speaks of the eternal thing. If somebody comes into our church and begins to openly use four-letter words and practice immorality, we have to handle that. That's not judging them in the bad way. That's discerning something and doing the truth toward them. And so you see, what we have here is two sides of a coin. Speaking the truth in love is always for the purpose of edifying, restoring, helping. But if people don't want to be helped, edified, and restored, then you leave them in the hand of God and you say, you can do whatever you want. It's a free country. You just can't do it here. Because you're not going to hurt other people in my church by doing this stuff. And so the decision, according to the Word of God, is that they don't come here anymore. I mean, if it gets to that through the biblical steps that are mandated in the Bible. Can we see that's love? As I mentioned last week, that's not only love for the body, that's love for that person. Because we're saying, you wouldn't be restored. We're not going to put a stamp of approval on your conduct. We're not going to help you destroy yourself by letting you do this here and saying it's okay. And everything I'm saying, if you add it all up, isn't this what it means to be a true witness? In other words, your behavior, what you're trying to do here, if this is a heretic or something like that, does not speak of the truth. It is not a true witness to Christ. And again, this is not a person who is trying to overcome faults. This is not a person, as Galatians says, who is overtaken by a fault. If it gets to the place where they're disfellowshipped, this is a person who is not trying to overcome and has dug their trenches. And in that case, you speak the truth in love to them, and that love says, you can't do that here, because you're affecting kids, you're affecting immature Christians, and the like. So we are to speak the truth in love. The church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Well, again, a congregation cannot be the pillar or ground of the truth unless the individuals in that congregation aren't growing to know Jesus in spirit and in truth. And isn't that what Jesus said to the woman in John 4? Again, the necessity of truth. 
He said those, he, in fact, he called, he defined this group he was about to describe tr- as true worshipers. He said the time is coming when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and in truth. Now again, for our charismatic friends who get involved in a lot of these things on TV and a lot of these things in these false revivals, you must worship God in spirit and in truth. If you think that all you need to worship God, to walk with God, to know Jesus, is to have some kind of an ecstatic spiritual experience. Jesus says you're wrong. And I'm saying even if you think that experience is of God, I dare say most of them aren't. They're of the soul at best. But Jesus says no. Spiritual worship, true worship of God, is in spirit, yes, but it is in truth. How in the world can I worship God if I believe lies about Him? How in the world can I worship God if I'm walking in error? Now, I can turn to God while still in error, and that'd be great, because then I'd come into the truth, but the error itself isn't going to get me closer to God, is it? How can error get me closer to truth? can't happen. So we have to worship God in spirit and in truth. We have to speak and act and live in love, but we have to speak the truth in love. So you can't divorce truth from the very essence of what Christianity is all about. You can't divorce truth from the essence of what the body of Christ is supposed to be all about. The body of Christ is supposed to be the temple of God. Well, if we are inhabited by Jesus, we're supposed to be inhabited by truth. And that's going to drive out the error. So, all one thing. You want Jesus, you have to have truth, and if you do have Jesus and truth, then discernment is going to come along with the package, but because you're growing to know Jesus, you will develop less and less of a judgmental, condemning attitude, and more and more of a restorative one. Again, you that are spiritual should restore such a one, it said in Galatians, how could I be one of those spiritual ones unless my attitude and heart is right personally with Christ? And I'm coming to know Him in truth. So, One of our points of the last two is that the church is to be the pillar and ground of the truth. Now all of this leads into the other point that I mentioned. That the church and individuals are to be a true witness of Jesus Christ to the world, yes, but to each other in our living, in our relationships. What is a person, for instance, just to get this down to a practical, what kind of a person in the body of Christ do you think you could trust? Wouldn't it be somebody that you knew was true to God? That you knew when everything was said and done, that person was solid in Christ and honest with God. If you knew that a person would do right by you under the Lord... 
whatever that would happen to mean for your particular circumstance, couldn't you trust that person? Because you would know, and we're not to trust men, we're to trust God, but I'm talking about human relationship here just for a moment. If you knew that a person would always be taking to God what needed to be taken to Him, if you knew that that person would always be praying for you, if you knew that that person would always seek edification, redemption, and restoration, and that that person, in essence, even if you're wrong in your attitude, if you knew that person would always be for you in Christ, not for you in your flesh, not for you in your error, but that their attitude would always be for you in Christ and in truth, wouldn't you have a much greater ease trusting them? than if it was somebody that you knew that was sort of just walking around with a petty attitude? Can we see how, therefore, when lots of people that get together become true witnesses like that unto God to each other, how that becomes a strong body? Because I know that you'll do your best to be faithful to God, Maybe you know that about me. We know it about the third person. What we have there is communion in Christ. And it's not based in our trust of each other's flesh. It's based in the fact that we know that God has a hold of each of us vertically. And that where one is weak, another will be strong. Because hopefully everybody's not going to fall on the same point at once. And where the Holy Spirit is reigning, that won't happen. Well, in Acts 1, Jesus talks about being a witness for him, and he gives it as the very purpose of the church, the very purpose of the giving of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 1.8, he tells them to go and tarry in Jerusalem. This was after Jesus was crucified, died, was risen from the dead. He's about to ascend. And, of course, they need to come to an understanding as to what they're supposed to be doing now that he's leaving. And he says, I want you to go tarry in Jerusalem. It ended up being ten days. And he says, but you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea, and in Samaria, and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Now notice some very important words in Acts 1.8 here, that, uh, uh, what Jesus spoke. First of all, it says that you shall receive power. You'll notice that Jesus did not say to them, go tarry in the upper room for ten days and conjure up some power. He didn't say, go tarry in Jerusalem for ten days and formulate a statement of faith. They would do that later, and that's good. But he didn't say, go tarry in Jerusalem and try to figure out how to get this movement going that I started. Didn't tell him that either. What he said is, you need to go tarry in Jerusalem until you receive something that you don't have otherwise. We've come to recognize that actually the new birth started right here in Acts 2. The new birth 
is the result of you and I receiving from above life, real life, that we weren't born with naturally into this world. That's why it's called a new birth. That's why Jesus said you have to be born again. You don't get this through any fleshly means, birth or otherwise. You have to receive it from outside of yourself, from above, into yourself. Otherwise, there isn't any receiving, is there? Otherwise, it's like what some preach today, Jesus came to bring out the greatness in you, which is utter nonsense. No, he didn't. Jesus came to show us we aren't great, and that he is, and give us something from above. And so they had to receive power from above. Now, what is this power that they received? Well, it's ability. It's an inner resurrection life. It's really Christ. If we would turn to 1 Corinthians one twenty-four, keeping our finger in Acts 1, we would see there that the power of God is not a thing. It is not a bucket of electrical current or uh, whatever we think in in some of these Christian ideas we get that are kind of silly sometimes. What do we think the power of God is? Well, according to 1 Corinthians one twenty four, it says, But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. And even though the language in Acts 1.8 isn't really quite the same as 1 Corinthians one twenty four, he says the Holy Ghost is going to come upon you and you are going to receive power. Can we see, and it's all through the Bible, that this was in Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit did come upon them. It was the first time that Jesus ever came to dwell in anybody. Why did Jesus, for instance, tell the disciples in the Gospel of John that the Holy Spirit has been with you, but He's going to be in you? Right there ought to tell us the Holy Spirit was not in anybody until Acts 2. Why did God say... The days are coming, thus saith the Lord, when I am going to make a new covenant with you that is unlike the old covenant. And he said, here's what the difference is. I am going to put my spirit inside of you. Under the old covenant, they were saved by the same Christ in anticipation of his coming. But the this life experience of salvation was not the same. It couldn't have been. It was a different covenant. And the Holy Spirit, as it says in John so many times, the Spirit had not yet been given. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, it was not a second blessing. It was not the charismatic definition of a baptism with the Holy Spirit on top of Christ within. When the Holy Spirit came in Acts 2, it was Christ coming to dwell within. And when we get away from that, we get into error. But you shall receive power when the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Now the ability that they receive, the power that they received, is to become his witnesses. 
In other words, when God gave His Spirit to the church, it was to make us, through a work of the Holy Spirit, into living evidence of His resurrection, living evidence of His Son. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And of course, included in that is witnessing, preaching the gospel. But this is talking about what we are. Now, just briefly, because I've got to close here in a few minutes, how would we define a true witness unto Jesus? This is what God says we're supposed to be, this is what He's doing. What did it mean? Obviously, it means more than just going around telling people about Jesus. That's included. If you look at what it means to be a witness, that speaks of being defined by my relationship with Christ. In other words, I have entered through the new birth, Christ in me, the hope of glory, I have entered (coughs) into this tremendous fellowship, communion, and relationship with Christ. A witness is somebody who is defined by that. In other words, that's who they are now. That governs their entire life. That governs their being, their person. They are defined by their relationship with Christ. Now, what are some components of that definition? I think certainly two. Number one, a true witness of Jesus is absolutely, unconditionally devoted to him. Inclusive in that would certainly be worship, but it would be, again, speaking the truth in love. If you are absolutely devoted to Christ, you're going to tell the truth about him, but even more importantly, you're going to let the truth make you true. I can tell people truth... I can tell people about Jesus, but the question is, is the truth that I'm speaking, has it had its way with me personally and made me true? If it has, or if I'm in the process of it, because we're all in a process, no one has arrived, if the truth is making me true to God, then I am becoming a true witness, because I am true to God. So a true witness to Jesus Christ is defined by their devotion to him. You belong to him. And you live like it to the best that you can, wherever you are in your Christian walk. The other component is that a true witness of Jesus is dependent upon him. Devotion and dependence. Really one thing in a sense of the word. It's all relationship. But I am defined by being dependent upon Christ. Now that clears up a lot of confusion because haven't you sometimes heard and maybe even been made to feel guilty that if you don't live perfectly, that if an unbeliever, for instance, might see some flaw in you, haven't you at times felt even condemned that, gee, I wasn't a real witness to Christ that day? And certainly we want to let our good works be seen by man, and, and we shouldn't have a lot of that. We shouldn't be defined by a false witness to Christ. But what I'm getting at is this. Once we recognize that a true witness to Christ is defined by a relationship to him, 
defined by dependence, can we see that the real way to be a witness to Christ with regards to works is, yes, to do good works, but it's also that when we don't, when we have a bad day, we're defined by the fact that we are dependent upon him for our righteousness. We're dependent upon him for his forgiveness and his grace. Now that speaks to sinners, doesn't it? We are in essence saying to sinners, listen, I'm no better than you are. The only difference between a saint and a sinner is that the saint has received something that they didn't earn. And that saint, when they sin, is able to say, God has forgiven me by His grace. He can forgive you. And so that too is a witness unto Christ. It's a true witness that's speaking the truth about Jesus Christ and what He has done and who He is to us. And so all of that is a part of being a true witness. So to be a true witness, you have to speak the truth and you have to do it in love. You have to stand for the truth. You have to represent the truth about Jesus so that others may be drawn to him. What did Jesus say? If I am lifted up, or put it another way, if the truth about me is told, I will draw all men to myself. He said to Peter, when Peter made that tremendous confession, the true confession, the true testimony of him in Matthew 16, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he said, Upon that rock, Peter, that confession of who I am, the truth, I will build my church. How many recognize that if you preach the truth without compromise, God can bless that? Because that's what the Holy Spirit wants to do. If you speak the truth in love, God can bless whatever ministry is going on. Because that's what he wants to do, speak the truth in love. Funny how we don't read the clear and simple words of Scripture. Just take that one out of Matthew 16. Jesus said, I, speaking of himself, will build my church. Can we see what happens when we get that wrong? And we say we will build his church for him. Or if we say he will build our church for us. No. Jesus didn't say I'll build your church for you. He didn't say I'm appointing you to build my church for me. He is saying I will build my church. Now our cooperation with that is to speak the truth. Let's turn to close to 1 Peter. And actually I think it's 2 Timothy, sorry. 2 Timothy. This passage is a pretty good summary of what God has appointed. Not just ministers to do, but all of us. You may not be somebody that gets up every Sunday and preaches a sermon, but how many know that every one of our lives is a sermon? Doesn't Paul call us living epistles written by the Spirit of God? Isn't a living witness... Somebody's who, somebody whose life is a sermon? 
and an epistle that points to Christ, that witnesses to Him. Here's Paul's instructions to the church on whatever level we are able to do this. Now notice the sobriety and the seriousness of this. Paul says in 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, I charge you therefore before God, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who shall judge the quick and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And that's serious business, isn't it? In other words, this is it, Paul would say. So what's he charge us? He says, preach the word. Be instant, in other words, continuous, in season and out of season. What does that mean? What does it mean when Paul says, preach the word in season and out of season? He means preach it whether it seems to be doing any good or not. How many know that as it pertains to a garden or crops, that you can plant the seeds, but for a time it doesn't even seem like anything's there that nothing will ever grow. It doesn't seem like it's season for corn. And if it doesn't seem like that, you're not going to see any corn. But how many know eventually you will? So he says, preach the word, or in other words, preach the truth, continuously in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort, which means to build up and encourage, with all long-suffering and doctrine... For the time will come when they will not endure. And it means to stand in, to hold up sound doctrine. But after their own lusts, in other words, after whatever they want, they're going to heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. You can get a great audience, and it's predicted right here from the Word of God, that if you preach a message that people want to hear, You're not only fulfilling prophecy, leading people astray, but you can get a big audience. Numbers don't mean anything. And they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned to fables. How many see today in the church so many following what amounts to fables? Just a bunch of nonsense. It's a bunch of utter nonsense. And those people preach it, teach it, And many believe. And God says the reason they preach fables is because they've turned their ears away from the truth. That's a pretty tough indictment, isn't it? But that shows us the absolute necessity of preaching the truth and keeping Jesus Christ in our relationship with Him front and center. And so God wants us to know the truth, He wants us to walk in the truth. He wants us to be a living testimony of the truth. Not just to the world, yes, but he wants us to be that to each other. And if we do that, it builds up the body in truth and in Jesus Christ.